Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are talking about design problems, but that's not all. We're also going to be talking about ingenious solutions to those problems in games. So we've got a bunch of games we're going to talk about. Some of those games include Just One, El Grande, Seven Wonders Duel, and many more. Amazing. I want to let everyone know before we get into it that if you are one of our pre-planners who play games along with us, uh, just as part of a little pre-show housekeeping, that Jake and I, we have been busy. We've been building cities in my city, the Reiner Knizia. So we're going to move that up in our queue because I've played the campaign three times in full now, and I think more than 40 times I've played the Eternal game. Jake's played the campaign at least two times now, right? Is that true? I have played it once and a half and then a half again. And a bunch of Eternal games. Amazing. So we'll put the two halves together. So we're really excited to talk about My City. So we're going to move that up in the queue. So we're covering My City probably next week. Then we still have Messina 1347. And and the resistance coming at some point soon for our games. Great. And one other piece of housekeeping we had requested in the last episode to help us reach our goal of 30 reviews. And we did say that if we achieve that goal, we would release a bonus episode, which we will answer found questions on Reddit. We're basically going to solve all of Reddit's problems in one foul swoop. And we did it. So thank you all so much for leaving us a review. I just want to give a quick shout out to everybody who did leave us a review since the last episode. And those individuals include Sassier Rabbit, Jamie Stegmeyer, Den Big Thermo, Razor Six, Razor Six, Jay Redeye, and Lizzie Fox. So thank you all so much. We have all these reviews in our queue that we will read out over the subsequent X number of episodes, but just know that we really appreciate it and a bonus episode will be coming soon. But we will. Brendan is going to read out one of those reviews to you now, as we like to do when we get kind things said about us. It makes us feel happy and we like to share it out with our audience. So this review is from Dangbig Thermo and it is titled Shut Up and Sit Down for the Laughs, Decision Space for the Analysis. Oh, I like that. Love it. Five stars, obviously. Off to an excellent start. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Decision Space is one of my favorite board game podcasts. Their deep dive episodes are excellent. Part review, part strategy guide. They're interested in what makes a game tick. Their coverage of classic games is second to none. Highly recommended. Thank you so much, Dang Big Thermo. That was an awesome review. That Jake, one of the amazing things about these reviews is that whenever they come in, especially written reviews, it just brings both of us a lot of joy to hear people's genuine thoughts on the podcast. And this one had me smiling for the better half of an hour. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. It was great. So thank you so much. An excellent review. Yeah. I give this review 10 out of 10. 10, 10 out of 10 for me as well. Great. So thank you so much. And yeah, we are 
Obviously, we're really excited that we hit that milestone. We're going to do that bonus episode for y'all. But there can never be too many written reviews of Decision Space on the internet. So we encourage you to do that or tell a friend. And I'll also mention, if you're curious about my city, maybe you played the campaign or maybe you just want to play the Eternal game, the mode at the end of the game where you can just sort of play. I don't think you even need to play the campaign to play the Eternal game. Just taught it to my aunt. You can do all of that on Board Game Arena. So we kind of wanted to mention that at the start of the show. Okay, now Jake revealed to me before we started recording that he has thoughts on the topic that we're recording that he wants to share with y'all before we get into the topic. So I'm dying and I want to hear it. (laughs) Okay, well, all right, we'll get right into it. So what we have here is a list of games that have elegant solutions to problems. And this is my question, right, is I feel like a lot of these examples, Brendan, I'm grateful that you spent a lot of time and effort coming up with awesome examples for the episode, but I feel like a lot of them are sort of like reverse engineered. You know, you can like find any elegant system in a game and then work back to like what type of problem this solves. Mm. So right before we are recording, you're asking me about a recent play of Cyclades that I had and you're like, well, how about like the auction mechanism? Does that fit in here? And to me, that's just kind of a silly question because shouldn't we be asking like, what's the the problem, right? Mm. I feel like, because I, you know, how is this, that's my question, turning it back on you is, you know, in what way is this different than just saying like elegant, so elegant kind of mechanisms full stop? I think that's a really interesting question. For me, I it's interesting to talk about novel or ingenious mechanisms yes but it's even more interesting for me to conjecture on why they exist and how they ended up in a game sort of what about the system might have led to the system being implemented in the exact way that it is within a game that's that's an interesting exercise right to kind of reverse engineer a game and figure think about why it probably became the game that it became we can't know for sure in a lot of these cases that's definitely the case uh there's a lot of supposition going on and i Admit right. that with a lot of these, I have not play tested the version of the game. That nor exists, talk to the designer. Nor talk to the designer. It'd yeah. be one thing if they're like, I wanted to solve this problem, which is why I use this mechanism. That's not what's going on here. A lot of this is me flexing and you to also flexing these sort of hypothetical design muscles, right? Thinking about a, a system in a game, thinking what would happen in the game if you took that system out, what problem would arise? And then kind of reflecting on, oh, wow, that's a really elegant solution because the game without that would just break in X way. And I think that while we're kind of coming at it a backwards way coming into this episode, oftentimes while I'm designing games, I come at it from the other direction. I find myself in a, in a position where something is really not working and I'm trying to rack my brain on how to come up with something ingenious to fix it. And that's really difficult. So this is sort of a, a fun uh I think candy sort of gobbling episode where we get to do the opposite and see someone else's ingenious solution to a problem that may or may not have existed, but arguably definitely would if you took out the school system. Interesting. Okay. Does that justify it? Should we just, should we shut it down? Seven minutes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. And and thank you for listening to this week's episode of decision (laughs) space. You can find us on social media, blah, blah, blah. No, that does make sense to me. I think you have more of like your designer brain, muscles you know exercise so i think you're more predisposed to think about games in this way yeah where i you know come more as like an enjoyer of games and for me i just i think i'm less likely to look at an interesting mechanism and see and the problem beyond that right Mm, i I tend to like 
I was looking at your list of games in the notes and I was looking at, at my collection and I was just trying to like see problems there. And I was having a really difficult time of it. Like I could see a lot of like, oh, I love this game for this mechanism. But that I was that was kind of like end of thought, you know, yeah, I was like, yeah, oh, totally. Raiders of North Sea, you know, it's got that elegant pick up a worker, place a worker deal. I like that. I mean, that solves some problems, right? Because it's like a really efficient rule. But I didn't feel like that like fit here. I thought of that mechanism too. And I also agreed that it didn't fit because I feel like the ingenious of that mechanism isn't really solving a problem. It's just, it gives the game amazing pacing. Yeah. The other yeah. one I was thinking about that I didn't put here was Eon's End. How mm. when, when you get, a, like you never shuffle your deck. Yeah. And I was like, that's cool. That solves a, this thing where you can like guarantee you get combos, but that's not really like a problem with a different yeah. deck building game. It's more of just like, uh, important facet that makes Dominion different from Eon's End and how the deck works. Sure, you know, and I like I like it in Eon's End, but it it didn't feel like it was solving a design problem. Though I I haven't played Eon's End, but it does make it much more strategic. Yes. So maybe but Eon's that's not End really is, a problem. Either. It's not a problem, but it's isn't just different. Is it long? Isn't it kind of longer? Eh, yeah, probably like two hours. So see, maybe you want less randomness. So then you end up, I don't know. We don't have to dive into that, into that solution potentially, but I could see how maybe you wouldn't want too much output random output randomness of your random shuffle f compared to a shorter deck builder, like star realms that you can play in 15 minutes or dominion. So then you end up with this novel mechanism when, where you're like, Oh, the combos just aren't coming together in your play test. And you're like, how can we fix that? Well, what if you could put the combos together before you put your deck down? Right. It yeah. fixes the bag builder problem where you could like spend a lot of resource to get some never cool get token in your bag and never get it. Mm -hmm. But that's not, then that's like apples and oranges. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's probably enough of the preamble sort of for how we're both kind of coming into this conversation. Brendan, why don't we get started with, can we start with like your best example that you came up with? Oh my gosh. That's, that's so much pressure. Let's see. Well, I just want like the clearest, you know, the clearest I feel example. like, potentially through no fault of our own it's very possible that a listener might be a little bit confused right now yeah yeah let's help him out <laughs> yeah let's give him a little bit of a, a soft landing i think i want to start with a game by antoine balza and bruno cathala called seven wonders duel which is one of the most popular drafting games of all time and drafting games are notoriously difficult to balance for two players uh it's just something that up until around five or maybe eight years ago, just you didn't see a lot of drafting games for two players. Um, and when Seven Wonders Duel came out, right, it's this two player version of a multiplayer game. And a lot of the design of that game was wanting to bring over all of the elements that you found in the multiplayer version for the two player version. So you have the military conflicts and you have the your system of having yellow cards for your economy. And you have these blue buildings that you can build in chains just for victory points. But the other thing is there's these science victory point to uh, symbols. And in original seven wonders, there's this triangular scoring of these science cards where the more you get, the more points that you're scoring for them. So you want lots of one symbol or you want sets of one of each of three symbols in the game. And that symbol, that system gets totally overhauled in the transition from Seven Wonders to Seven Wonders Duel. And I think this was solving a problem within that game of probably over uh, a triangular scoring symbol collection game like that, 
over-centralizing the meta that would have existed, right? It sort of makes the whole game almost about this tug of war about those science symbols because either I have to take them uh, or Jake will. And if Jake, if I just let you keep taking them, you're going to keep getting points and keep getting points. So all of a sudden, every single game becomes about, in some part, taking those science symbols. And then you never really have one person who gets to pursue the science strategic path while the other person kind of gets to ignore it and see how that goes because if it's a triangular scoring system where every time you take a card you're getting more points no matter what if i just let you do that you're just going to win so but that Brendan, system don't you is a see problem. that if i just let you take all the science cards in seven wonders duel you literally win it's like a win condition yes and no right because no, the wait. difference becomes yes, right? It is. Yes, literally. You automatically win. If you take them all. If <laughs> yeah. you take them all. But if you take all, if I get them all but one, yes. Then we're fine, right? Yeah. Then I don't necessarily win the game. So it hasn't totally over-centralized, right? Because it's it's about getting that set of six symbols in Seven Wonders Duel. It becomes the set collection game. And there's this other element of getting progress symbols, right? So it adds this tension to the system where Jake, if we're playing a game of Seven Wonders Duel, maybe I go hard on science, I'm going for the full set, and you're incentivized to just take one of them. It's not that mm -hmm. you have to compete for them all the time. Yeah. And then also to make that system a little spicier, now we add this progress system where you get special benefits so that if I do pursue it and I don't get the full set, maybe I'm not completely out of luck. Right. And it, it definitely... I don't, I'm having a hard time participating in this conversation because I don't know Seven Wonders. I've never played Seven Wonders in my life somehow. Um, we so need to I, fix that. So it's hard for me to like see the problem. But yeah. I do really enjoy Seven Wonders Duel that it feels like you're competing in three distinct arenas, right? Where, at, where it's like science, you're going to try and get all of them. You've got a tug of war military and then you've got points. Yeah. And if science was just also points, then it does feel like that would be a much less interesting game. I don't know, over-centralizing or what. Um, but yeah, I, I I think I hear what you're saying. I don't know if this was your best example, but... Uh... <laughs> I should have had you pick it. Yeah, I should have picked one. The, the problem wanna... for me... Yes. Here, can I, let me just restate it so yeah, we can, we can punch over. really quickly. Let's cut all this. What? No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, for me, the problem is, part of the joy of Seven Wonders is that you get to pursue different strategies in different games, right? Okay. So some games you're doing this and other games you're doing that. And if science tokens are triangular scoring, like in the original Seven Wonders, in Seven Wonders Duel, there's no framework for you to do that because you always have to be in the science game. Otherwise, you're pretty much throwing it to your opponent. Or okay. the system so gets neutered and it doesn't give points and it shouldn't be there, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. To me, okay. this feels ingenious, but maybe it needs too much context. I think it's very so why don't you take I that? want I want to just I, I, I'm sure that our seven wonders fans are with you 100%. I hope so. Um, but I also wanted to say this conversation reminded me that Board Game Barrage just put out a episode very recently all about Bruno Cathala sort of deep diving mm. his designs and history. And it was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, did you listen to that? I did. Yeah, it was great. Didn't and didn't they say that like like Cathala basically like sat next to Bowser on a plane and then Bowser was talking about trying to design Seven Wonders Duel and they basically just like solved, solved it and it. designed it on a plane ride. I think to Essen. Yeah. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um they didn't mention Kanagawa though. Ugh, heartbreaking. So, yeah. Well that was okay. just a big missed opportunity. We'll correct it. We'll correct it. Okay, let's let's do like a I don't know. 
maybe like a much better example. Okay, okay. Put your money where your mouth is. So this is my example. Um, how about this? My city. We were just talking about it. We're going to cover it soon. But there's a problem in my city. So what you have to know about my city is the way the game works. It's like a polyomino tile placement game. And the way the game works, when you uh, each round, a card is revealed from a deck that shows the tile that all the players in the game have to place. The, there's a problem with this, I think, which is that it's perfect information. You know exactly what all tiles are going to come out, and that could create major analysis paralysis or just like the need to, you know, you could literally pre-plan where the entire board, I, the entire board. It, it changes, of course, because, uh, you know, oh, I want to put something in the top right corner and that card got revealed too early. So it's not it's not exactly like that, but it, I still feel like it creates the need to do that. So that to me is the problem. Too much okay. perfect information, too much clarity in the decision space, too demanding of your players for what is a, a family weight, light family weight game. So Jake, what's the solution? So the ingenious solution here is uh, Rhino Kniz decided to put one extra card in the deck that does not show any of the tiles that you will place instead when this card comes up you flip over a second card and that tile is removed from the game therefore you no longer have perfect information that all the tiles will be available to you because until that card comes out you may be leaving a perfect t-block space for your blue t-block but that card could be removed i think sometimes within games there's mechanisms that don't have to be there, but give your players permission to enjoy the game as they will. And I think that this game, this mechanism falls so squarely into that, right? Because so much of the mechanics of my city, this card and the passing mechanism, we'll talk about my city a ton more, obviously very soon in a different episode, but still give so much room for planning. But if you don't want to, you kind of, this mechanism kind of says, okay, don't worry about it. It'll be fine because you can't perfectly plan anyway. And I think that some of the solutions that we're talking about part of what take a great game to maybe an exceptional game or a good game to a great game are these sort of mechanisms that give players the freedom to play the game exactly how they want. It Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think the game would still work without it, but totally. it's like it's almost like a valve that's just like a letting a little bit of pressure out of the decision space yep. so that you're just not, you don't have to cook quite as much in there. I love also, Jake, when you when this card's on the bottom of the deck. So yeah. it gets down to the final three and you're sort of like, oh, what is it going to be? There's this tense 50-50 for a piece and then maybe you get to place them all. feels great. It gives really good variance. Yeah, I just had one where it was the second to last card and that was also funny. Yeah. It's also, it's great too because sometimes what piece is taken out can really change the whole shape of the game. Totally. I think we don't want to get into spoilers no. too much. But did, but did, is that, did I do it? Is that yeah. kind of what you were thinking? For sure. Yeah, Dang. I think that's an awesome answer. Yes, yes. Amazing. What okay. do you give me out of 10? 10. Let's go. You always yes. get 10 though. Yes. Okay, let's see. Well, I give you like a six. So I, I will say though, in doing this episode, well, yeah, I said you all, I always give you 10. You <laughs> yeah. don't always give me 10. I'll give you a seven. <laughs> but you got to give me the seven before we start recording. Um, but <laughs> one thing I will say, Jake, coming up with my list that I was longer, um, was it was really hard not to just do uh, Kinesia games. Yeah, right. I just wanted to do Kanitsu games over and over and over. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit because I, I think that it is so clear in a lot of his designs because 
Kinesia's design ethos is just so clean and yeah. so minimal that's right. If your rule book is a page and there's like one thing that's just like kind of an extra like add-on thing, like yep. you better believe it's there for a very important reason, sure. right? So it, it helps you like clue into this very thing very easily. It's That's a really interesting sort of observation I feel like for this episode is that for Kinesia games, there's like these load-bearing ingenious decisions, right? Because they're so simple. We talked about how simple designs tend to, the designers at, in a way almost have less agency over the game that comes out of it. And he's sort of a master at sort of saying, okay, this is the game that came out of it. What's one rule that will, as simple as possible, address the core problem that arises from this really simple structure and create a really interesting game? So I don't know that I wanted to pivot to this right away, but it's flowing naturally in our conversation. So I want to talk about, actually, I'm going to pivot. And we're not going to talk about Tigress. Whoa, right dude, I've like, you broke my ankles on that one. We're going to talk about Babylonia. <laughs> oh my I didn't even God, <laughs> whoa. So Babylonia is one of uh, Kinesia's tiling games in which you are laying these different tiles across the board. And there's three primary different ways to score points. And they really make up the strategic footprint that you chase through the decision space. So there's city scoring, ziggurat scoring, and farm Farmers. Scoring. Jake's got it. Hasn't yeah. played yet, but he's so ready for the rules <laughs> teach. I can't wait for the day. So one thing about that is the ziggurats are these pieces where when you when they're fully surrounded, the player who has the most pieces around them gets to take a special power. So that rule says to the player, sort of what that encourages is if you play tiles around ziggurats, you will get a special power. So that's good. You want to do it. So what says that I should go to a different ziggurat, right? Like the, the strategic path there is encircle a ziggurat. So I just place all my pieces around a ziggurat. Duh. I finish doing that. And then that sort of area of the board becomes boring. Um, and it's very linear. There's not a strategic wrinkle. It's just clear what you should do. So the the rule that gets introduced that I think is ingenious that solves this problem. And the problem is linear strategic paths. If this rule doesn't exist is when you place a piece next to a ziggurat, you score one point for every ziggurat on the board that you're already next to. Very clean, very simple, right? So what that means is if I put three, two pieces next to one ziggurat and I'm only next to one, it's worth two points. But if I put my first piece next to one and my second piece next to another, all of a sudden that same action is worth three and that just scales, right? So it's a really great way to encourage players to to spread across the board and create this tension between wanting to finish a ziggurat versus wanting to spread out for get lots of points. And it also means that when you pursue that strategy, you don't always pursue that strategy in the exact same way. So I think as much as we can, when we sort of are talking about this ingenious solutions, I think I want to kind of highlight why you might look for that type of ingenious solution. So here it's this beautiful way to kind of take this simple system and have it work on in multiple fronts, right? It's multimodal in how players can approach the exact same thing. Okay, this is working for me now because I had a thought, which is that I'm maybe so we relieved. could identify some of games that suffer from this problem. Okay. Don't have the ingenious solution. And the, the one that comes to mind now, and this is another spoiler, this is just like spoiler-filled episode, Great. is Messina 1347, mm. which I feel as though in a lot of my plays thus far, and maybe this will change when we get around to recording the episode, is it is exactly that linear strategic mm. horizon. Like you yep. kind of just go down a path. And then once you're kind of going down, there's nothing pulling you in a different direction. In fact, everything is like pushing you to like, keep going, keep going that way, keep going that way. Um, 
And that creates a, a decision space that I think feels can start feeling a little bit like stagnant towards like yeah. the end of the game. So kind of rote decisions. Yeah. Like I wish yeah. it had something like that was forcing you to diversify or at least incentivizing you to diversify on, on the different strategies in that game a little bit. Yep. Totally. So good one. 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Okay. I'm going to do the other one that I thought of, and this is uh, a game that we don't often uh, talk about how I ingenious wish... it is. Can I jump in real? I just want to say, I, guess I was taking my shocked thunder. <laughs> to see this in the notes. Shocked. Well, it's a great example, I think. Okay, get into because it. Because I think that the problem that this game solves is a, a problem that has been around for a really long time until this game hit the scene. And I'm talking about Catan or the settlers of Catan, as it was then called. Mm -hmm. And that problem is tremendous downtime between turns. Yep. And I think that is something that like has plagued board games for a long time. Obviously there are great games that exist in sort of the like board game, hobby game enthusiast uh, Avenue prior to settlers of Catan coming out. But like my, myself, um, the first time I had played Catan and so many others, it was their first sort of experience with it. And the problem I'm talking about is just tremendous downtime between turns, right? That's mm -hmm. why Monopoly is like a pretty big problem in a lot of ways. It's like not only is a long game, you're not really doing that much yeah. um, while you're waiting to go. You know, same with like risk, right? Maybe you get to like incidentally roll some dice or, or whatever. And then here comes Catan. And Catan, I think, has several great solutions to the downtime between turns first we have the fact that everybody gets rewards on every turn basically it doesn't matter who rolls the dice if uh the die results show uh a number that you're on and get resources from you get the reward too so that yep. keeps you engaged at the start of every turn you know you really want to see the result of those dice there's you're also involved in negotiation on each turn like anytime anybody wants to trade that's something that involves every player um so i think that helps a lot keeping people engaged around the table and then the third thing and this is only something that really might horrify folks listening to this podcast but there is a six player up to six player <laughs> expansion for settlers of Catan, <laughs> and it introduces and i've played a lot of six player Catan in undergrad because we, we were just so hooked on it. It's like, yeah, more the merrier, you know? And uh, six yeah, players yeah. of Catan, here's a hot take for you, better than four players Catan. Because it has this great rule where you get to build on the player's turn opposite from you. It's a, it's good a rule. great rule, right? To keep to, So you have like a mini turn halfway around the table from your turn. I think other games have implemented this as well. I think that um, it works that way in... I might be wrong, but I think there's something like this in Concordia Venus team variant, mm. which I played once. And I think that the new wingspan expansion that makes it a bigger game, like up to like six players also has a similar mechanism. So all for all those reasons, I think that like reducing downtime on players turn, I am perceiving was the ob obvious design goal here. And I think it's something that succeeded. And I think that might be a big reason why Catan became the global mega hit that it is today. We don't get to talk about negotiation games very much on the show. I think partially it's a product of how we record the show typically, just how we're prepping. Also, it's a product of the fact that Jake doesn't like negotiation games. I was about like to just say that. Games. That was going to be my point. Yeah. 
Um, but I think that it's one thing that I love about how it's implemented in Catan is like, if you don't pay attention, then you're just not benefiting, yeah. right? It's this, um, it's a dynamic within the game that encourages players to participate more, which in a family environment, oftentimes you, for me, the thing that was most frustrating growing up was like, why aren't you paying attention to the game we play? Catan solves it by saying, if you don't pay attention, you will have a worse time at this game. You won't have the same opportunities that other players do. Yeah, it's a good yeah. solution. There are a lot of examples of games that don't do anything to solve this problem to detrimental effect, but it's definitely yeah. something that you see other elegant solutions to as well. Like this is a huge problem in Dead Reckoning, which I played recently, but that has a cool mechanism where like once between turns, you get to upgrade one of your cards. So it just gives you something to noodle on while you're waiting um and, yep. and that i thought that was really fun so i think this is something that especially long heavy games perhaps could continue there i think there's room to continue to innovate and and make sure uh, that your games are you know that should just be a design goal for everything like engaging to all players at all times yeah totally jake my cat's screaming at the door i have okay, to okay. i'm sorry yeah i was gonna call that in you know like if you're hearing cat noises you're not crazy i hear them too but it's fine. So my next game, we're going to go from Catan to a party game, which I bet y'all didn't think we were going to cover a party game in this ingenious design episode. But I recently walked into a Barnes and Noble and sitting on a shelf calling to me was just one, an ingenious party game. Wait, let's role play that. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Hi, is this Brendan? Yeah, this is just one. (laughs) Great to meet you. I'm going to take you home. Like, scene. Oh, no. Where have we ended up? You've played Just One a ton, oh, right, yeah. Jake? Okay. So I hadn't, and I knew that was a problem that I had to correct, which is not the solution that I'm going to hide. That is an elegant solution to having not played a game. It's like the one solution. It's especially Just One. If you haven't played Just One, solve the problem in your life of not having, having not played Just One. So... Just One's interesting, right? It's this party game that really wants you to have a high player count because the format of Just One is that there's one person who's a clue guesser and they don't know what the word they're trying to guess is and then everyone else at the table is a clue giver and they're all going to write one word on an easel and turn it around and present all of the words to the clue guesser and based on all of the words that they're guessing, obviously it can't be the word that you're trying to guess written on your easel. That guess, the clue guesser has to guess what the word is, that one word. But there's a rule in just one, which is that if two people give the same answer, they're canceled out and they don't get presented to the other player. So it's a game that benefits from uh, lots of players being at the table because it creates this interesting player psychology around, I think that the most obvious answer is X. So I won't write X down and it leads to a more interesting nuanced decision space, right? But to be a feasible product, you have to sometimes make design affordances that create situations where they can work at maybe player counts that wouldn't be exactly ideal. And a player count that would be really hard for just one would be three players because at three players, there's just one guesser and two clue givers. You're going to end up with less interesting answers because you know, you're more, you're less likely to overlap with the other person who's also giving a clue because there's just two of you. So the way that just one solves this, and this is just such a simple, that's a problem because the game feels less like the game, the psychological experience of giving clues is less rich. Super simple solution. Have each player give two clues. 
So you each have two easels in front of you. You each give two clues. And all of a sudden, this game that works better at higher player counts works really well at three players. Maybe it doesn't work perfectly, but I think it's a really brilliant way to kind of preserve the decisions and the feel of the decisions that are going on. And it also adds this higher order thinking of, okay, I know I can write down two things. How do my two things relate to each other? Oh, that's interesting. And it adds this texture that might not exist at higher player counts, right? So it adds this little, you know, maybe you lose the dynamics of playing with five or six, but you gain this other little thing. And I like when games This is interesting. This is adding value to me because I just never considered playing this game at three players despite mm. owning it because it just seems like there's probably it wouldn't work well. So time. it's awesome that you've had such a good experience playing that. And it actually sounds really fun getting to come yeah. up with two clues um, for each one. Yeah, I really dug it. It's it's really neat at three. I I, I will say at five. Yeah, better. because when you laugh, it's louder. that's good. It's inter- this is an interesting one to think of games that have this problem that don't solve it. But that's just yeah, so many games that are just like, yeah, probably don't actually play this at two even though it says on the box or like don't play it at five even though you technically can yep where and designers just get forced into put yeah yeah totally and there's also the thing of in just one right the solution doesn't necessarily work for a heavier game because it's effectively asking you to play the game twice but in just one you're just writing down a word so it's pretty easy whereas if we were playing something like seven wonders i don't want to draft two hands not as much fun right right? so yeah. It, it works so well because of the weight of the decision. Yeah, low barrier to playing two-handed, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Yep. I, w- I want to just shout out to one of our uh, longtime listeners in the Discord, uh, Joe, a.k.a. Carcassonne Hater in the Discord, if you know him. <laughs> he will be at Geekway uh, for the Decision Space Meetup. So if you're coming to that or interested in coming to that, please do. Tickets are still available to Geekway. There's no... Uh, additional ticket for the decision space meetup we'll just be there uh hanging out jake selling tickets he didn't tell me (laughs) yeah yeah don't i'm all the ticketing will go through me don't bring that up with brendan (laughs) don't tell brendan yeah Yeah. um but anyway so we're we're playing this game of just one on board game arena and we're playing i didn't know this was possible a never-ending game we're just going through like all of the clues or something like in it so basically how just one works in real life yeah it's like an eternal game of this right okay and i am the guesser and the word that i'm supposed to guess is galaxy okay Okay. and i got it right because i got some awesome clues by the other players in the game the clues were guardians quest mario and milky so i nailed it i got galaxy one clue got uh, got covered up right so i thought how could one clue alone get covered up in this game would you believe that the clue that joe wrote for galaxy was galaxy galaxy <laughs> yeah, he wrote galaxy <laughs> talk about it yeah I'll give Jake the word. You know, and the crazy thing about that is if that had been revealed i never would have got it <laughs> That's great. Yeah, because you wouldn't have guessed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's in front of you. Oh my gosh. Thanks for letting us chuckle, Joe. That's great. He can't defend himself. So and no. there's no defending yourself. So. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So we go on to another one. Let's do it. What okay, are you picking? Cool. Are you gonna take one from my list? Yeah, because I've I used up all the clues I could come up with for this episode. <laughs> so now I'm just picking and choosing out of Brendan's ideas. I want to go with, I'm going to go with one of yours. I'm going to read what you said. Um, and I'm going to change it a little bit. 
So the game that we're talking about now is Keyforge. I knew you were going to take this. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the problem as listed in the notes. MTG Magic Mana Paradigm is fundamentally at odds with algorithmically generated deck game. Not having agency over your mana base in a deck would be very frustrating experience and would lead to either boring decks with all the same distribution of lands or poorly made decks, too much or too little mana. The solution is the house system, with by which I think you mean and are extending that to the fact that you get to pick one house and play all the cards of that house yes. with no mana cost or anything. Yep. I think that's a great solution. Wait, wait, wait. What? You didn't read my last part. Richard Garfield's gift to humankind. Oh, I thought that was just an editorial comment. I didn't realize <laughs> that was for the podcast. Um, anyway, so I think that's a great solution. I would, for me, I think the problem is just like mana in magic it's just more simply it's just the fact that like the like there's a better way Mm. of doing card games than having half of your cards roughly be resources that you need to like play your other cards um because that leads to a lot of just say what you want about magic it's a genius design it's a fantastic game Uh, i did a magic draft a couple weeks ago and had an awesome time with a bunch of friends but a lot of those games are just non-games because you don't draw any lands or you draw too many lands and you don't get to play the game. That's the problem. And I think it's solved. The solution is the deck system. I don't know, you know, I don't know that, that we'd have to even bring in the algorithmically generated decks into it. Well, I think, okay, will you state the house system and then I'm going to respond to what you said just for people who maybe are listening to our show who haven't played Keyforge. So okay, I think yeah. it's so ingenious. We have yeah, to yeah, share. yeah. Yes. So the house system in Keyforge is your deck is divided into three houses. So each house is like a faction. So you have 12 cards of each faction and then you shuffle them all together and then you draw your hand and on your turn, you get to pick one of those three houses and you get to play as many cards as you want from your hand for free, as long as they are of the house that you've selected for your turn. And you can also activate any cards that you have out on the board, creatures or artifacts that have previously been played, as long as they are a part of the same faction as well. And it is just a really fantastic system. We talk a lot about it in our episode on Keyforge way back um, that creates tons of tricky dynamic decisions around like, do I choose a house that I can play a lot of cards or do I choose a house where I can activate a lot of cards or how can I you know, get myself unstuck from a situation where I don't have very many of anything to pick. Um, so it's, it's great. And that was episode 17. So it also makes Keyforge into this sort of hand management game where you're planning your, your turns now and you're guessing what the, the board setup will be like on a future turn, trying to shape what house will come into prominence at the right time in the game. But I want to respond to what you're saying, Jake, which I'm going to give the mana system the benefit of the doubt, because I think having played it, it creates this interesting planning, right? In a deck construction game like Magic the Gathering, there's interesting decisions to be had maybe about how much mana do I include? If I'm playing draft, do I, you know, how many, how many lands do I include? Is it 17? Is that the right number? I I totally agree. Interesting in the deck construction part of the game, not so much in the deck, in the playing playing part of the game. So when you go to a game where you're not allowed to construct your deck, if you were going with that existing paradigm, it just doesn't work. And I think that it's, that's a, I imagine there could have been an older version of this algorithmically, algorithmically generated deck idea where the lands are just this shining problem where it's like, how do I solve this? 
because it's either it, it it feels terrible to buy a Keyforge deck and have it not be very interesting to play. And that happens sometimes, but it would happen so much more if there were lands in those decks. Like if you algor- algorithmically gener- generated magic decks. I can't decks, imagine that there was ever oh. a prototype of Keyforge with lands in it. I, it might have been we, a mental we, we, prototype. We've it might have been on. mental. We've moved on. Richard Garfield has moved on. he was designing Keyforge for like 20 years. But yeah. Before the technology supported. Keyforge is great. Can you, you imagine if Richard Garfield came out with a game in 2023 with that land. lands in it? There's ways to do land in people would ways. not. People would lose it. I'm here to defend land. Imagine. Okay, okay we need to move on because I'm just going to talk to you about land for the next 10 minutes and then <laughs> our, we're going to lose our audience. They're going to be like, just one, and then you're talking about lands? <laughs> okay, Jake, I want to talk about... Let's see, what do I want to talk about next? I think I want to talk about... Mm, I want to talk about Dominion because this is this is a solution that I think the second I say Dominion out loud in the context of this episode, people are going to know the problem that the decision solves, and they're also going to know the mechanism that I'm talking about. And that's the mechanism is that when you buy Vic, Dominion, it's a deck building game where you're building an engine with your deck, and then you're having to at some point buy victory point cards that go into your deck. Uh, and fundamentally change the way your deck works. So the problem that that solves is that, well, there's two, I think. One is that with this sort of um, positive agency loop of an engine building game, right? The better you do, the better you're going to do in a game like that. Because the faster you get your deck online, the faster your deck spits out better hands and the faster you can buy new cards that will procedurally spit out better hands. So you could have a game like that where within the first few turns, someone has a lucky shuffle and all of a sudden that lucky shuffle is pushing them forward so fast that they've pretty much won the game on turn three or four. And then all of a sudden that's not interesting as you sit there trying to sort of make decisions around that. So the solution is, is that to win the game, you have to mess up your engine. Your engine cannot run un unmessed with into the end of the game. You have to take these victory point cards that do nothing and are just going to mess up your hands and shuffle them into your deck. And I think that almost all engine building games, unless they're really short, need some wrinkle that forces you to reconsider how your engine works. Uh, Or maybe really short isn't the right way to frame it. It could also just be that don't give your engine that much opportunity to run, right? It's more fulfilling if you only get to see it in a certain number of cycles. But in Dominion, it's all about shuffling up. So this solves that core problem of whoever gets ahead early is going to stay ahead and inevitably win because it forces them to make an interesting decision around how strong their deck is compared to everyone else at the table and when to add those victory point cards into their deck. Brilliant. Every engine building game has to think about how they solve this problem, whether it's with length or with a mechanism like this that forces players to intelligently and offer an interesting decision around destroying their own engine. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a a great example. And I think it is an example that has a really strong lineage. Um, And thinking of games like Race for the Galaxy and Reza Arcana, Tom Mm. Lehman games that also do a really good job. And those is just that the ending sneaks up on you. It's a quick game. Right? Yep. So that you can't just build a great engine because if you just spend your whole time building a great engine, when the game ends, you'll have an awesome engine, but not the points that you need to win. Yep. You know, so forcing players to, you know, sacrifice for points is, is huge in those games. Raise Arcana wasn't one we ultimately loved, but 
that is a I think a really strong example of the this kind of design principle or solution in practice. Yeah. An extreme example of it. Okay. Uh well so one another one that I wanted to bring up was uh so a card game. This is an older card game. Actually it's not on the list, but the problem is that you know everybody just wants to put all the best strongest creatures and spells in their deck um and just play with only those what game is this oh it's um but the the solution is you had rather than just having all the strongest monsters and spells in one deck you had to add converted mana cost and lands to the deck you know and that way (laughs) players won't just be able to use only the strongest monsters you know (laughs) Crows and Cloudscapers, you know, you can't just put four of those in and play them on turn one because now oh they cost a lot. And, and that way... <laughs> Get off the stage. <laughs> Wait, so land is the ingenious solution? That's right. That's where I was okay. going full circle. The real ingenious solution of magic is just to make the creatures suck and it's all about the spells in <laughs> yeah. the early days. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, I'm joking, but really it is kind of like... An ingenious come solution. up with that pretty dang smart. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think Richard no. Garfield, you know, credit to tip of the cap. Yeah. He needs it. Yeah. No one, who's giving Richard Garfield <laughs> nobody, any credit? These yeah, days? nobody's giving Richard Garfield any credit at all. And we're here to put an end to that. Um shoot. Dang it. Oh, let yes, me do it. I did remember. Okay, you have one? One. I actually okay. remembered the real example I was gonna do. Good. Okay, and this is another game that we don't get to talk about a lot on this podcast, but it's a game I absolutely love, and that is Arkham Horror Living Card Game. Okay. And I think this has uh, a core problem to cooperative games that comes up all the time, which is like, how do you calibrate difficulty in mm. a game? Right. Yeah. And th- I don't think this is a problem that has an easy solution because a lot of people, players want their cooperative games to be really difficult, right? Sure. Like maybe like you only win 20%, of, 20% time. of the time or even less if you're like a super hard ass. Um <laughs> Because then, you know, you you, you don't want to win the first time, right? And you feel like you've really accomplished something when you do win and you have more gameplays to like explore it. And, the you know, the wins mean something. Whereas other players are like, which I'm more in this camp, like I just always want to win, you know? <laughs> if, like if, if I play a cooperative game and we just like lose, it can be fun if it's like at the end, but it can also be like a little bit disheartening, you know, yeah. for the group. It's like, dang, you know, we almost we almost won. So there's, that's, you know, and because it's just people fall in different camps, like, what can you do? So enter Arkham Horror, which is this game that is supposed to be presenting an incredibly overwhelming odds, right? You're supposed to be fighting against, like, Cthulhu and forces of unknown and unknowable darkness, right? It wouldn't make sense for this to be a game <laughs> we that's, got it. you know, that's, like, light and fluffy and you yeah. win all the time. You know, it's supposed to be a game where like really bad things are happening to you. And over the course of campaign, you're going to be taking some serious damage. Um, And I think because of the theme, even for somebody like me who wants to be winning more often than not with the cooperative games, you, you want it to be tough. So I think the ingenious solution here is the fail forward mechanism, mm. which is that no matter what happens in your game, you will always progress to the next scenario. Yeah, It's just evaluates how well you succeed and that might change 
the way that you enter the next scenario. So if if you die, then maybe you take like a scar. That means you have like one less hit point for the rest of the campaign. Or maybe your helper dies and now you they're unavailable to you, so on and so forth. But you're always advancing. And I think that for me really hits the sweet spot of like, I kind of don't care how hard it is because I'm just trying to do as good as I can. And then I still get to progress no matter what. I still get some experience points to level up my deck and I still get to see the, you know, continuation of the story. And I think that is the sweet spot for me. Um, I don't know, Arkham Horse almost assuredly not the first game to do this, but it's my first experience with it. And I think it's one that, uh, puts that into practice excellently. I think that's a brilliant example for this episode, Jake. And there's so many games where I think video games are especially plagued by this, where there's this problem, right? Where you want people to be able to experience de- developers invest so much time and energy into their games that they want people to experience all of them. And the paradigm for in the early days of video games was we'll just make them really hard. So people's purchase of a game feels worth their time as they spend a lot of time playing them. But over time, our access to entertainment and to media has changed our relationship has. So a solution was, oh, we really want people to experience all the stuff we made. They'll like the game more if they see the later stuff. We'll just make it really easy. That ends up not being as validating. And I think that this is such a, a nice compromise between the two in a way. I really need to play Arkham Horror, the card game. It's hard for me to, I know I like it, if I play it, I just need to play it. Yeah, you know? it's a, it's a, a very difficult one to recommend because it. I mean, you could buy like the base box, and that'd be fine. That'd be fine, but it just gets so expensive so fast. Mm, interesting, and, and it's just like you know, it's hard to organize it. Like the setup and teardown is just absurd. There's a lot of downside to it, but it really, when you're in there playing, it, it's an incredible game and experience. Jake, I'm going to do two really, uh, one really quick, and then sneak a longer one in. So. The first one I want to do is High Society, another Kinesia game. This is the problem is this is an auction game where you're trying to bid on points uh, and you all have a set amount of money at the start. The problem is the player who spends the most money is most likely to win. The solution is as simple as you can imagine. It's brilliant. The player who spends the most money cannot win. This creates this really interesting psychological storm for the game to exist in. And I think is a really good framework for games that get stuck in this sort of Uh, space right where there's this one thing well oh this is the most likely way to pursue victory well what if you just make it so the person who does that the most can't win if it's a hidden sort of thing that might be a really valuable solution to the problem of a given game yeah i i love that mechanism but i feel like it's more of like an ingenious mechanism in search of a problem i don't think that the person who spends the most money necessarily wins like you could easily just like overbid it's true it's true i I think on average i think it could be more the solution is it's just like an uninteresting auction game yeah that's fair that's fair you know yep okay here's here's the next one i want to do jake azul azul is interesting to me if you're reverse engineering thinking of a problem that might exist which is that the player who goes first i think this is a good one always has the most choices right azul is this tile collection game and tile arranging game where you're trying to pick Uh, tiles in these five different colors and arrange them on your board and in front of you on the table are these depending on player count these different factory tiles that contain uh, tiles of the same piece 
So when this game was being designed, that that's a really interesting novel setup. But one problem that arises very quickly is, oh, the first player to go in any given round just has the best decisions consistently, right? They have the most options. They're going to have the best arrangement of tiles. So I think the solution that comes out of this are, is twofold. One, I think that problem is probably what leads to the mechanism where tiles get pushed to the middle and become this central pool where everyone else can later take from that new pool that's a collection of those resources because it means that there's this interesting push-pull of texture where new options are being created as the game goes on. So you don't have these static rounds. It's brilliant. Any drafting game should kind of have a way to address this problem of whomever goes first is going to have the best options in drafting from this open tableau, right? If you can add a mechanism that mixes that up and says maybe not so, that's going to be great. And then even more brilliantly, it adds this first player token. So the first player to take from the center also gets to be the first the next round, which it turns out being first in any given round is still really good in Azul. And then they triple down on the ingenious and make that give you have a slight negative in potential points for taking that first player tile. So it adds a little bit of pressure of maybe you don't want to take it first because you're going to get negative points. And if you get a ton of negative points that round, instead of maybe it being worth one negative, all of a sudden instead it hurts you to the degree of like negative five points or something. And, yeah. and that could be really negative. I like this example a lot. I think it is kind of another general example, which is the problem of unbalanced first player, right? Yeah, and, and there's a, a lot of different solutions for it across the board gaming hobby. Um, I I'm really like uh, the way it's handled in Five Tribes, which uh, it, it has an auction for turn order at the sure. start of each round, which is a classic. Um, but it lets the per and it lets the person who bid the lowest in the previous round is like the first person to bid and then nobody can bid that same amount so you have a lot of power being the last person to bid to sort of like pick your spot be like i think this is the most this is how much value is out there so i can bid 12 or whatever or nine and then if anybody wants they either have to let me go first to get that value or overpay for it and that's yeah. such a fun decision thing through um so yeah that's another uh, Bruno Cathala mentioned on this list as well. A regular Canizia himself. Um, yeah. Jake, should I, we do, how many more should we do? Should we do two more? Three more? Let's do it. I mean, we can do as many as you want, man. If you okay. think these are like good. I think there's some good ones. There's some quick ones. Okay. Do you want to do one now? Or should I just keep going? Just run you through keep this going. There, there, You keep going and I'll chime in as necessary. Okay. These next two are kind of paired. So there's this problem potentially in card games that is... When you're dealt a random hand of cards from a shared deck, the hand of cards you're dealt isn't always going to be equally balanced. Card games can solve this in many different ways, right? One solution might be it's a light card game and it's quick. That's fine. I understand it's an inherently random game, but maybe that doesn't fit the, the, the game that you're creating quite right. Uh, and in, I think each of these cases that was right uh, for slightly different reasons, and they found ways to solve it. So my first example is Air, Land, and Sea. Air, Land, and Sea is a very small deck game. There's 18 cards shared by each player uh, that range in value, and you're trying to build these collections of cards at three locations to win them. And because you're both drawing from this small deck of cards with just 18 cards, there is the potential that one player just gets dealt a strictly better hand, which feels unfair when you're on the other side of the table. That's a problem. So how does the game designer solve it? You introduce this retreat mechanism where instead of just playing individual rounds, you're playing a series of rounds. And when you know you're losing a hand, the earlier you retreat, the less points you lose for losing that round. 
So essentially, it gives you a way to turn a bad hand into a slightly less bad hand by just knowing that it's a bad hand, by sussing out that it's better to fight another day. It's sort of thematic and interesting based on the theme, and it's just an ingenious solution to that problem of we're drawing from the simple shared deck, but my hand sucks and yours is great. Totally. Great. Let's go on. I've got another solution to that problem. Okay, great. What is it? Which is Cat in the Box, which I just played. And this is the same solution that's in countless trick-taking games, which is that you get to bid a number of tricks. Yes. That you're going to win. I love that. I think that's such an elegant solution for unequal hands. Like, I think I'm only going to be able to win one or zero tricks this hand based on what I have. And I think that works great. I love that you're bringing that up, Jake, because it's it's so true that the retreat mechanism in Airland and Sea is the, the, a different side of the same coin as... I had never realized this as bidding for tricks, which it's the same exact design trick. It's the same it's, problem. It's the same problem. Solutions. But it's kind of the same solution. It's kind because of the same solution. At its core, the solution is ask players to evaluate the strength of their position and reward them for evaluating it correctly. I think the trick bidding is almost more rewarding. It is more rewarding. Because you still lose if you retreat. You're like, yep. you can feel like I did the best I could have with this hand. Yeah. But it still doesn't feel like you won. Where yeah. you kind of feel like that if you bid one trick and and you're right i almost feel this is like untapped design space because we so often see this mechanism of evaluation of your position within card games but we don't necessarily see it It might be really interesting in like a dudes on a map game where you're randomly dealt a a set of of troops you know i think this is really good yeah doesn't that seem like a cool Or or like even something that like shifts the balance from like the evaluation being like the small part and then the big part like is playing it out yeah i don't know how that would work but almost in like the way uh beyond the sun made like the check tree the game the big part and like the space exploring the small the part. small part yeah. i want to see like a trick taking game or, or something where it's like the evaluation is the, is big, the part. big part yeah that would be cool in that dudes in a map game that i was talking about it could almost be an auto battler too where like you see the consequences of what yes, happens and you're yes. trying to evaluate your matchup okay we're going to talk more about that one i want to talk about how a different game solves the same problem which is arguably maybe less a problem in this game and this game is scout scouts this really cool uh, climbing game in which you're trying to get rid of cards in your hand but in scout you can't reorder your hands so the hand you're dealt the order of them really matters and it could be really frustrating. It can be really frustrating to play scout with a very bad hand where you don't have lo- many interesting decisions of where you're going to shed cards to create new pairings of cards and see your path through the game. Some hands you get dealt in that game just suck. And that's a problem for that game. So the ingenious solution is that all cards in scout are double sided and you can simply flip your hand over at the start of each round. So whenever you're dealt a hand in scout, you're actually dealt two hands and you get to choose which one you play. Brilliant. I think this is even better than you're giving it credit for. I it definitely solves is a p- solution to the problem of unbalanced hand. It also solves the problem of giving players like a mulligan in games. Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't you don't do have that. The upkeep it, problem. You couldn't do that in Scout anyway because it's like a shared deck of cards. But exactly, it's giving people a mulligan without the downtime of having to like shuffle up and redraw. I think that is like in and of itself is amazing. Obviously, it wouldn't work in a card game like Magic or Keyforce because you can't just flip over your cards or whatever. But, but there, I mean, a, a mulligan that takes zero time to implement is really, really great design work. So the things of great games are made of. That, yeah. yeah, it's so good. 
Okay, this next one, we're going back to Bruno Catholiland with Kanagawa. Kanagawa Whoa, is sort of like... Kathala takes the lead. Kathala takes the lead. Kanagawa is basically, it takes the Colorado mechanism of filling these rows with cards, and it adds a slight twist to it, which is that players aren't choosing where they go, and some of them are hidden information. Uh, but it uses that as a tableau-building low interaction drafting game setup that makes for really interesting decisions and there's overlaid puzzles within that game but within that sort of tableau building game you're trying to pursue these shared goals and some of them are sort of things like have five trees or have a lot of trees is essentially the overlay of the goal or get x number of a certain type of person and one problem that would arise from something like that is that whoever gets ahead on progress towards any given goal is going to be the most likely to complete it, right? If Jake starts the game and just picks up two trees, he's going to be the most likely person to get to the, have the most trees goal because he already has two trees. So it disincentivizes me from getting trees because I know Jake's already pursuing them. All of a sudden a game that's about doing our own thing to some extent really starts to feel like doing something by ourselves in a shared space. So the way that Kanagawa brilliantly solves this, ingeniously solves this, is that the goals, the objectives in this game are tiered. All of a sudden, there's a goal where it's have three trees, have five trees, have seven trees. And Jake, who gets ahead, has to decide when he gets to the three tree finish line, does he want to take the three tree goal and have that be the last tree goal he can take? Or does he want to push further and maybe go for five? And then when he gets to five, same decision. Does he want to take that and cash out? Or does he want to push even further and go for seven? And I think it's a really interesting way to design goals within a game that creates interaction. It's forcing me to look over at other players' tableaus. It changes what cards I might take based on what comes out in, uh, in that shared draft. And it also makes it gamifies the objectives themselves, right? Where totally. all of a sudden I could have hubris and it's just great. I love this yeah. mechanism so much. It's such a fun decision that you get out of it too, about whether to take the goal that you've achieved or go on. Because if you go on, you can miss it. Don't get that. You can never go back and say yep. like, actually I do want the three tree one. Thank you. It's like too yep. late. You, you miss your one chance of getting it. Um, so I think you, I think this is a great example in Kanagawa is like, it was our first game we covered on this podcast. It's a game that more people should absolutely play. It just rocks. But the other thing that this also achieves in addition to that is what we were talking about before with Babylonia. It also gives you incentivize. It incentivizes pursuing different strategies because you can only go so high on any given path. Yeah. Um, and, and because you're not disincentivized for going into something somebody else already is. So I think, you know, it, it, it doesn't maybe strongly encourage the diversification, but it, it at least enables those paths. And you will have to diversify somewhat in the game, right? To get multiple objectives, because none of them are like that hard to achieve. Right. So at least the first level of it. So yeah, I think I think it does that. I think it does multiple, solves multiple problems very well. It also makes ensures in a way, Jake, that the climax of the game is exciting because it makes it such that, right, if you just got the objective early on, okay, I accomplished it. And, and if you could go back, there's not a huge reason why there would be tension. But the fact that you have to pass up on an objective to get to the higher scoring ones means that later on the game, there's going to be a more tense setting for each player where they're pursuing these more rewarding objectives. So it just makes the end of every game more exciting than it would probably be without them. Okay. One of the ones that I have down is just the math is really good. 
I don't, does that does that count, the, Jake? What? <laughs> the math is well designed. That's the solution of El Grande. Oh, I, I don't know. Let's do <laughs> you it. You have to explain. You have to now, now I have to explain it. Okay, I don't so understand El, what you're talking about. El Grande is this uh, area control game that is brilliant. It's Jake and I both adore this game. It came out in 1996. It's one of the oldest games that I own that I play regularly. And it's this game of uh, trying to control territories on the board, but also a hand management game around playing these power cards that select how many uh, cubes you have in your supply that you could put on the board uh, or at odds with who gets to pick these strong action cards that are out on the table and the player who plays the action cards that are high value, the power cards that let you pick those actions. Those are the ones that give you fewer people to put out on the map. So there's this really good core tension and each player goes around the table and plays one of these cards. And if there is the opportunity to have a tie, that could be really messy to adjudicate and solve in an unclean way. So if you had all players play their cards simultaneously, maybe there's some tiebreaker rule that feels really unfulfilling, even though you're sort of solving the problem of all players playing their cards at the same time, it speeds the game up. So the solution is everyone's going to play their cards sequentially, and there will never be ties. Because the way that they ensure there will never be ties is the deck of cards you have is mathematically designed such that every player at the table will always have an option of another card that they can play because the deck's big enough that you'll still have an option in your hand that other players haven't already played. I think that mathematically works out. They could be wrong, but it's something like in (laughs) 99.99% of situations or something, that's true if it's not always true. And if it's not always true- I've never encountered that- A tie. A tie in a game of El yeah. Grande. Yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful, simple, ingenious to solution to a problem that could exist, which is that ties suck. We don't want them in our game. Okay, we'll make it such that they're impossible or very, very difficult to have. And then you yeah. never feel it. You don't even think about it. Okay. Well, let's let's finish this off with one okay. final game. What do you final think? Game. Finish final strong. game. It's, finish it's, strong. We're gonna do we're going back to Canizia. It's Tigris Ooh. and Euphrates. That creates a tie. Uh, I like so we're, we'll do a shootout at the end of the episode. We'll do a shootout. Okay, go get your. You get. I'll go get my Canizia games. You get your Catala games. And then we'll throw them. Okay, but um, anyway, Tiger Team Freddy's brilliant game, tiling game where there's this war system where tiles come out where kingdoms that these player that players control become combined, and some tiles are taken off the board. But there's a potential for these kingdoms that start off as fairly discrete. There's multiple on the board. To, to really combine and to snowball into these mega kingdoms where uh, whomever ends up in those positions has the most tiles of a given color on their board, which allows them to then start wars with smaller kingdoms and get even more tiles of that type. So there's this light potential for snowballing with the war system in that game that makes it easier for players who are already ahead on a given color to get further ahead. So if the scoring, this is like the most classic potential ingenious solution so that's why we saved it for last so that means if a player got ahead say on red they could score 12 points 15 points 18 points 22 red points very easily uh very quickly and that's a problem if you just win by having the most red tokens but the ingenious solution is is that there's four colors that you're pursuing and your score is wait 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 take your time with this this is gonna really knock people's socks off just go slow okay okay so there's four oh. tiles in the game, four Whoa. colors. You're trying to score points. Red, red blue, green, black. black. <laughs> you want to get them scored as equally as possible. What? Because your points 
are no. equal to the color you have the least. Oh, man. That's a genius. That's crazy. No, you're totally right, though. I mean, that is like, it's like almost like we're making fun of it because it's something that's brought up a lot. And people just call it like Kinesia scoring in games where yeah. they have this, right? Where you score your lowest valued point. Um, but the reason we have that term and the reason why this exists is because it's a clear design problem that comes up a lot, right? When If, if, if you have an over-centralizing one thing and that's dominating the strategy in the game, um, what an elegant way to solve that problem. Ugh. In 1997, I wish I could go back and yeah. see people's reactions to this role. I don't know. I could even go back to 2014 when I first played it and see my own reaction again, and I would be thrilled. Because to go back I, to 1941 and see Citizen Kane in theaters. I for can't. The first you time. need to stop. <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> this is such slander. I'm turning red. It's not even my favorite movie. I only watched it a few times in high school. Yeah. I don't know. Every time you start extolling the virtues of if you say Euphrates, it, that oh, just goes God. right into my head. Oh, well, okay, Jake, what do you think? What's the, out of 10, where do we end up with the episode? Okay, well, you know what? I think that, I think we should pat ourselves on the back. Okay. And uh, I, I think this is like, I don't know, it's like a nine. We had a lot of fun. We had fun. We laughed. We laughed at Joe. That was when we laughed. Wait, what are your thoughts on this? Is the end of a strong note? Cyclades. Cyclades. What do you think? I played Cyclades. You know, we didn't play all the rules right. That was the main problem with giving my full review. So our our game had not a lot of fighting in it. Okay. Um, You know, we kind of like all all were sort of holed up in our own areas. There's a little bit, but not so much. And And that was because we made a pretty significant rules mistake about. Like we thought the monsters you could get in the game just stayed out like they mm. do in Blood Rage, but really they're only supposed to last like only one turn. Uh, so there's like a monster. It's like you can't like invade this island. The so most perilous world. Yeah. And then <laughs> some, the other one's like you can't have mon- like your armies depart from the island. So it's like everything was just kind uh, of like stuck. So there. would you play it again? I would definitely play again. I think it was my, despite that, like I still think I got a good sense of what the game is. I really like the auction mechanism. It's really interesting to have like a territory control game where it's like the big part is the auction. Mm, yeah. Um, that was cool. I think I liked it the most out of Inish, Kemet, and Cyclades, but I've only played all of those games exactly once each. So it's not really going off a lot, but yeah, I liked it. I mean, I thought it was pretty cool. Definitely would try it again you know, with the, with the right rules, still not my like number one favorite type of game, but, but you know, it was cool. It was like a, you know, a solid seven, eight out of 10. That's pretty good for a genre you don't like. Yeah. 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 No, I think it's a good, you know, Bruno Cathala, that guy knows his board games. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, this was our episode on ingenious design solutions to big problems in games. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Decision Space. We'll see you all next week. As always, we want to thank Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out, and I hope you all have a great week. Bye. Bye, all.
Nice. That was fun. Uh oh. We're still recording. Failed this to is, stop recording. This is the episode that never ends. Oh no. Is it really gonna not let us? I don't know. It just said it said failed. User is experiencing some connection issues, but recording is being saved locally, is what it says for you. It says unable to contact the server. You may experience connection issues. Wait a moment, and if the problem persists, try refreshing the page and then try stopping recording. I'm gonna try that. Okay. Uh, it says changes may not be saved when i click refresh it's gonna be okay though right